persecuting me. So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. Maria Escriva in the middle and on the left, your father. Dad? I found out that you were in a seminary with Jose Maria Escriva. I warn you, leave it alone, Roberto. He knows something about Jose Maria. Your father is a product of difficult times. You should try to understand him. This is an announcement from your government. There has been a military uprising. to burst from our cages and set ourselves free or die in the attempt. Go, go, go! I'm such a coward. Me too. Father, they've started killing priests. We have to leave. It's suicide to stay. Now, especially now, we have to be source of peace. That costume of yours won't protect you anymore. I don't wear this for protection. Jose Maria, the truth is, we are born alone and we die alone. All we have in between is suffering. I know what it is to be angry at life. Please be careful where that leads you, Mano. Not one of us is free from human weakness. Hola, buenos dias, Ketal. Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you again this week. That was the trailer, or at least the sound from the trailer, of the movie There Be Dragons, a short little cl- uh, little clip of uh, St. Jose Maria Escrivá's life. It was a very, very good movie. My wife and I were very blessed to go on a little date to see that movie uh, just tonight, actually. So I thought I would share that with you, and I'll talk about that just briefly. And then I'm going to share with you a clip from a talk that Dr. Scott Hahn gave at the At Fullness of Truth conference up at uh, Arlington, Texas, just last weekend. But before we do that, let's say a very quick prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you to be inspired. We pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit to come upon us. We place our lives into your hands. We pray especially for all those who desperately need you most, those who are sick, suffering, and dying. We pray for the conversion of sinners, for the 
repose of all those that have left us and that we so deeply mourn. And we pray for those in purgatory. We pray especially for the intentions of His Holiness, Pope Benedict XVI. We pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I deeply encourage you to check out that uh, trailer, that clip over on uh, the There Be Dragons website, which you can find a link to on my website at www.catholichack.com. Well, just last week, we were away for the weekend, which is why we had no show last week, and we were at the Fullness of Truth Conference up in Arlington, Texas, featuring Dr. Scott Hahn, Dr. Michael Barber, and Dr. John Bergsma. It was a great event. It took a lot of effort and energy from a lot of folks and uh, there were some ups and there were downs. For instance, I ruined my MacBook Pro by dumping water in it, or on it rather, at midnight on the Friday night before the event. I stayed up all night long staring at the ceiling of the hotel room wondering what I was going to do. Uh, God did come forward and, uh, and did help us get through the event. And many people, I hope, were touched. Because it is always our goal, my goal in particular, to be the donkey upon which Jesus rides today. To be the tool that is used for his glory alone. And we hope we accomplished that last weekend. So today I'm going to share with you a very short clip, a 20-some-odd-minute clip, from uh, the talks of that event. And I hope you'll enjoy them. This one comes from Dr. Scott Hahn. It uh, comes from the Saturday Night Benefit Dinner, where he talks about blessed Pope John Paul II and how he affected his life and how he can affect our lives. So I hope you enjoy that. Well, let's take a listen with Dr. Scott Hahn on what we're all going to be doing tomorrow for Divine Mercy Sunday. Because we're about to celebrate not only a marvelous climax to the Easter octave, but the beatification of a gift from God that comes along about once in a thousand years. And you know, there's something very special about May 1st, going back to 1955. May 1st, of course, was made the feast of St. Joseph the Worker by Pope Pius XII in that year. And why? Well, because May Day, May 1st, had become the cause of celebration for all of the communists. And it was when the workers would celebrate how they had broken free from the chains of the West and capitalism and all of the rest. But communism represented such a powerful force against the church and against the faith and the amount of martyrdom, you know, it was just amazing. And so Pius XII wisely selected that day for the church to make not a statement against communism so much as a statement for the dignity of labor. St. Joseph the worker, who though he doesn't have a speaking role anywhere in the New Testament, nevertheless gave the word of consent that is the human image of God the Father's eternal word to show us that fatherhood is not primarily biological but theological. It's not primarily physical but spiritual. And so for many years we had this feast. When I came into the church, I really looked forward to this. But then in April of 2000, for the first time, Divine Mercy Sunday was included in the liturgical calendar as the climax of the Easter octave. 
Many people rightly recognize that John Paul can trace this back to the amazing graces that came to the church through now St. Faustina and the teaching that she received from our Lord concerning divine mercy. You know, you'll go through 20 popes and not discover a single liturgical feast has been added to the calendar on account of one of them. And yet this pope, as you know, not only did he last longer than practically any other, but he canonized more saints than all the others put together and traveled more widely than all of his predecessors combined, 103 international visits. But in addition to that, the new code of canon law, the catechism of the Catholic Church, well over a dozen encyclicals and even more apostolic exhortations, gave to us a cause for celebrating God's greatest attribute, as St. Thomas Aquinas describes, divine mercy. Not just because as we look down the menu, that's our favorite. Well, there's power, there's holiness, there's justice, there's knowledge, mercy. Oh yeah, mercy, I want that. It isn't simply God's greatest attribute because we're drawn to it. It's precisely because it is the sum total of all of his attributes working together. If God were simply all-powerful, that would be impressive. If God were simply all-knowing, that too would deserve applause and praise. But power and knowledge coupled with goodness and love, what happens when you coordinate them all in the face of human misery? That's misericordia. That's divine mercy. Mercy is precisely how a God coordinates his infinite power, his infinite knowledge, his infinite goodness, his infinite love to do the very most with the least that we are and have. It is his greatest attribute because it really is the coordination of them all. It's not simply divine leniency. It's God reaching down to us in our weakness and then raising us up to share in his glory. It's worth a feast, and the feast is the fitting climax to the Easter octave. Because as we begin the Triduum, we do so in terms of Holy Thursday, and then Good Friday, Easter Sunday. We've grown up on all of that. By the way, how many people were here for the morning presentations and the afternoon presentations? Can I just see a show of hands? Yeah. Because I, I just want to restate something that really struck me when I was reading John Paul and now Pope Benedict, and that is that nobody there at Good Friday, nobody there at Calvary would have come away with the capacity to describe their experience in terms of a sacrifice. I mean, as hard as that might be for us to believe, Jews standing there would not have been able to describe a sacrifice because it took place outside of Jerusalem, beyond the walls, far from the temple, no altars, no priests, and thus no sacrifice. And yet all Christians today share this common belief that this was not only a sacrifice, but the supreme sacrifice of all times. Why couldn't they see it? Because for them it was a Roman execution, plain and simple. So how does an execution become a sacrifice? Only by looking at Friday in the light of Thursday. Only by seeing that the Eucharist that Jesus instituted on Holy Thursday is what illuminates the suffering of Good Friday and transforms that into a sacrifice. And then as I also mentioned, John Paul was the one who probably opened my eyes more than anybody else to the fact that Easter Sunday is precisely what transforms that sacrifice into a sacrament that we can all do in remembrance of him. And that the Eucharistic body of Christ is not the battered corpse upon the cross, it's the resurrected Lord of glory, the ascended King of kings. That's who's present under the appearance of bread and wine. 
And so we look at what happened there on Good Friday and realize that we're saved not because of the violence. Jesus saves us not because of how much he suffered. There are many people out there who want to evangelize by stressing the fact that God just simply vented his wrath and poured it out and heaped it up on his son, who he could no longer see as his son. He could only see our sin, and so he just had to let it all out. And when he was done, then out of his system, he could you know, transfer Jesus' innocence to us, and along with that, a reward, just as he had transferred our guilt to him along with the punishment. That is legal fiction. That is divine schizophrenia. No father looks down upon his son and sees our sin and then simply vents his wrath until it's out. That is a false gospel, and yet that is the only gospel many people heard, and in, in so many ways, that's the gospel that I heard and proclaimed. Until John Paul, Divis et Misericordia, rich in mercy, one of the most amazing documents that the church has ever received from a successor to Peter. And really all he was doing was unpacking the scriptures that I thought I knew. And with a little bit of help of St. Thomas Aquinas, who pointed out, you know, a long time ago that it isn't how much Jesus suffered that saves us. It's how much Jesus loves. That what is really happening there on the cross at Good Friday, at Calvary, is not him losing his life, but him giving his life. The proof of which is precisely what he instituted the day before in the Holy Eucharist. He didn't lose his life, he gave it in the Eucharist. And the proof is then there on the cross at Calvary. This is so important for us because suddenly we realize that the cross is the greatest expression of divine mercy. On the one hand, it is arguably the greatest sin that humans have ever committed against the Almighty. I mean, it's one thing to break the commandments, all ten of them. But it's another thing to spurn his greatest gift that came to us in his son and to declare him a blasphemer and then to falsely accuse him until he is executed. And yet, what did God do with that which was arguably the, the worst thing we've ever done in our relationship with him? He brought about the salvation of the entire human race. The greatest evil is what God used to release the greatest good and all of the graces of our redemption to show us it's not how much he suffered, but how much he loves, and how much that love led him to obey the Father. Because, you see, on the one hand, suffering, as John Paul reminded us so many times, suffering without love is not only meaningless, but it's un unendurable. If you have to suffer for no purpose, for no body, for no love, you despair, you give up. On the other hand, love without Suffering is just words, it's just emotion, it's just rhetoric. There's a close connection between love and suffering that I think we all are in the process of discovering more and more, and especially as we come to the Easter octave year after year. Because it's the love of Christ that transformed the suffering into what we now call a holy sacrifice. It's the love that the Eucharist embodies on Thursday that transforms the suffering of the cross on Good Friday into a sacrifice. And then the resurrection is what transforms that sacrament, that sacrament into the source of our own love as well. I mean, at one level, this is really deep. But at another level, this is the gospel. 
We couldn't come up with this on our own. But once God has stooped down to us and revealed a love for us that holds nothing back, then we have discovered the raw materials for what John Paul was calling for, and that is the new evangelization. And why, when he called for that, he also very, he practically brought about what he also described as the springtime of the new evangelization. And we're still in it. Because, you know, you talk about stars lining up. You know, May 1st, the Feast of St. Joseph, that's beautiful. Representing the church's response to communism. It was a great start, but it wasn't done until Wojtyla was elected Pope in 78. And then within the next 10 years, having visited Poland more than probably any other human, his own spiritual energies brought down the Iron Curtain, brought down communism without World War III or IV. So what begins on May 1st in 55 culminates on May 1st in the year 2000 when this liturgical feast is first celebrated. What a beautiful providential irony that May 1st, the Feast of St. Joseph, the liturgical feast that he instituted, ends up being the day that he will be beatified, where the whole world doesn't just get to reminisce in a, in a great figure, in a kind of nostalgic manner. We get to bask in the graces that he is releasing from heaven above as he looks down upon us from our Father's house. He is doing more good for the church now than he did when he was our Pope. All of what he's doing now is the culmination of what he did for us then. One of the greatest favors he did, I think, was raising up this, this German professor named Joseph Ratzinger. Because I gotta tell you, he's picked up right where John Paul has left off and how fitting it was for him not to waste any time for allowing this whole beatification to unfold as a great gift to the church. If I had to choose between one or the other, I mean, most people would say, oh, John Paul's my favorite. I'm sorry, but my jury is still out deliberating because I fell in love with Joseph Ratzinger about two or three years before I became Catholic a quarter of a century ago. When he wasn't all that well-known, I began devouring his work, and I just realized this guy is so clear and yet so deep. What a choice for John Paul to have made him the cardinal prefect to really guide the church in its own doctrinal understanding and its teaching. But unfortunately for Joseph, he had to become pope, not in his 50s like Wojtyla, but in his late 70s. Can you talk about a hardship? What a sacrifice. And yet, what he's doing besides beatifying John Paul, it should also be a cause of great thanksgiving. On the one hand, in the year 2007, he came out with this book, Jesus of Nazareth, which he wrote in his quote, spare time, unquote. <laughs> How do you write a 300-page book as a full-time pope? Where do you find the spare time? This must have been a heavy burden in his heart because, frankly, after he had been elevated to the archbishopric of Munich, Freising, back in the late 70s, he had decided not to write any more books, articles and that sort of thing. But the Lord laid upon his heart shortly before he became Pope Benedict this desire to kind of pick up where John Paul had left off and to bequeath a legacy. I would encourage all of you at some point in the near future, if you haven't already done so, to pick up volume one of Jesus of Nazareth and discover how clear and yet how deep and yet how clear that book is. He will make the Bible come alive and most especially the Gospels, the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary of Scripture. 
But I also want to point out that in the year 2008, he surprised us all by calling for this synod on Holy Scripture. Surprise, surprise. And all these bishops and people met for almost a month in October of that year to discuss the Word of God and the life of the people of God. Again, another way of picking up the torch that John Paul had handed to him with the help of the Holy Spirit. And then in the year 2009, the year of St. Paul, at that point, you had to pinch me. It was just like, I've got to be dreaming. <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth, the Synod and Scripture, the year of St. Paul, the year of the priest, and then last year in 2010, Verbum Domini, this amazing document on sacred scripture, more authoritative really than any document we've seen since the close of Vatican II in 1965 with Dei Verbum. And it isn't academic for scholars, it's one of those things where you could download it, print it out, and read it in an evening. And just find yourself eager to be reading the Bible and to participating much more profoundly in the sacrifice of the Mass. But then, as you know, a little more than a month ago, in 2011, Volume 2 came out, having been written in his spare time. I want to propose to you that this man must have a burden upon his heart, very similar to John Paul's. I'm teaching a course this semester for graduate students in our MA program on fundamental moral theology. And we began this semester by pointing out that during the years of Vatican II, from 62 to 65, there was this call for renewal in moral theology. And it was universal. We need to renew moral theology. And then as soon as Vatican II ended in 65, what happened? A renewal? No. A, a crisis the likes of which we never have seen before. Descent from the ranks of priests and bishops and theologians when it came to Humanae Vitae being promulgated in 1968 courageously by Pope Paul VI, hundreds of theologians stood on the steps of Catholic University the same day it was published to announce their dissent, their plan to publicly protest and reject the teaching. And that just caused the church throughout the West, but especially in America, to kind of start spinning downward into a lot of chaos and confusion. I don't want to rehearse all of that. Because to be honest, when I came into the church in 86, we were still in the midst of that crisis. I knew that from my graduate courses at Duquesne, where I had a, a number of intelligent ex-priests who took it out on John Paul. And I was the only non-Catholic in these graduate seminars and the only one de defending John Paul. I was the only non-Catholic, and it was the strangest thing. But I got to tell you, during those years, and especially from around 1979 to 1985, without excommunicating anybody, without losing his temper, without raising his voice, he overcame this confusion and dissent in moral theology. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. We now call it the theology of the body. For years we just called it the Wednesday audiences. From 79 to 85, I remember it because I was a doctoral student in a seminar taking a course in ecclesiology. And I asked my professor, can I do a paper on the theology of the body of Christ and apply this amazing teaching to the church as the bride and the body of Christ? He said, ah, those are just Wednesday audiences. You, once you become Catholic, you'll realize that just kind of comes out every week. You know, I'm like, have you read this stuff? No, but I'm telling you, it's just Wednesday audiences. I kind of forgot that exchange. Ten years later, this professor, a Jesuit, came back to me and reminded me of it in order to apologize for it because he said it took me a long time, but I finally got around to reading this stuff, and you were right. 
That would have been a great paper, which I never ended up writing. You know that George Weigel has referred to John Paul's theology of the body as what? A theological time bomb. I mean, it's ticking away. It's exploding in the hearts and minds of many people. He didn't just simply reaffirm the moral absolutes of the church's authoritative teaching. He took it to a whole new level so that the crisis in moral theology could be overcome by seizing the high ground and seeing the beauty as well as the truth and the authority of the church's teaching about love being sacrificial and life-giving. I want to propose that if the legacy of John Paul for the church is this theology of the body, then the legacy for Pope Benedict may well prove to be what many have described as his biblical theology. The very same day the Vatican released that document in November of last year, a number of archbishops and cardinals echoed the same observation, that history will know Pope Benedict as the, the as the Pope of the Bible. You know, we might, we might be too close to really have perspective because when you study the history of the papacy, you'll discover, much to your shock perhaps, that we have never seen a world-renowned theologian steeped in scripture who carries his Greek New Testament, it's well-worn, it's marked up, and he knows it inside and out. Never before have we seen a world-renowned theologian, biblical scholar, become the successor to Peter. And to devote so much of his energy, his spare time, to releasing not a series of anathemas and condemnations of all the bad biblical scholarship that has been coming out for the last several decades. And believe me, the crisis in moral theology from back in the 70s and 80s is in some ways reflected in the crisis in biblical scholarship that still remains in the 90s all the way to the present. And he is not unaware of that. But following John Paul, the best defense can sometimes be a good offense. Show forth the beauty of the truth of the Gospels. Don't just proclaim the word in profound homilies. Expound the word in a kind of contemplative study to show that anybody can get this if they have the heart and the desire. But once you do, you'll never want to let go of it. You're going to want to go deeper, and you're going to want to share it more and more. This is what Volume 1 began. This is what Volume 2 has just completed. It hasn't even been out nine weeks. And I want to say, your grandkids will ask you, what was it like to be alive back then? <laughs> and we'll say, well, you know, it was kind of hard. We had fullness of truth. We had these banquets, you know. <laughs> and we think, oh, we've got it so hard. Brothers and sisters, we've got it so good. 50 years from now, people who aren't even related to us are going to come up and say, what was it like to be alive when John Paul was leading and then when Pope Benedict took over? Because you're hard-pressed to find a more exciting springtime of evangelization in the history of the church. And that's what we're all a part of. And that's what we all enter into together as the faithful sons and daughters of God the Father. To celebrate not only St. Joseph and not only John Paul, but the divine mercy that has made us not just pardoned sinners, but adopted sons and daughters of the Most High, the eternal inheritance of which exceeds our wildest dreams. I want to really encourage you to read. All right, I, I admit, a quarter of a century ago, I became a Catholic because I read my way into the church. But I tell you, I've been reading ever since, and it just gets better. It's 25 years, and yet it, I, I, it feels like, I can't imagine what it was like 
to not be a Catholic. On the other hand, it feels like more like you know, 25 months because it's still so fresh. That's because conversion has to be ongoing and ever-deepening. And God wants to use every single person here as apostles to go forth, but as I said this afternoon, even more than wanting to use us, God wants to bless us because he's not primarily our boss. He's our Abba Father. And this is why in those gospel stories that we're all reflecting upon, when Jesus heals these people and he says, don't tell anybody, he's not employing some primitive form of reverse psychology. <laughs> don't tell anybody, you know what that's going to do. Like a rubber band, you pull it back and then it flies in the opposite direction. They'll tell more people that way. No. The fact is, Jesus wants to do things in our lives, not so as to spice up our testimony, so that more people get more excited but that we will fall more in love with him and discover how in love he is with us and allow that to just continue to deepen and grow within us so that whatever we do is not going to burn us out. It's going to simply be the overflow of the fire within. That's what John Paul gave us. That's what Benedict is continuing and I'm convinced that's what God wants to do with all of us this weekend. The event was Thy Kingdom Come, Unlocking the Gospel of St. Matthew. You can find the full talks, three talks from Dr. Hahn, three talks from Dr. Michael Barber, and two talks from Dr. John Bergsma, plus two homilies. You can get all of that at fullnessoftruth.org. I'll link to it at catholichack.com. But you get the full CD set, or you can pick up an MP3 disc with all those and more. Until next time, may God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground.